name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Lord, make us worthy to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not temptation, but this from evil one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So we left off on John 11. Uh, sorry, we ended up John 10, so we're going to read John 11. If I can get my Bible over here. Okay, today's going to be a little, you'll probably be grateful, a little less um, uh, academic. Um, but let's just refresh on where we're, we're at because the Gospel of John is written in a particular order, right? Like St. Mark's is just a lot of like, and then, and then, and then. It's a lot of storytelling, right? Um, St. Matthew's trying to make a point to a particular people, right? Luke is everything is on the road, right? So it's storytelling, it's people, right? Whereas St. John's is, is everything has seems to be in an intentional chronological order, um, the way that, that the evangelist is telling the story. So we just left off at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which really didn't go very well um, for the Lord, right? So it started off very well, and people were really excited because he's the celebrity that does miracles. Um, and people were there, they wanted to see who he was. And we see that the same people, the same thing that will end up happening to St. Paul later on, but the same people who are always out to get him are at everything he does. Um, and they're stirring up the people and they're challenging. And there's this kind of combative atmosphere that's going on where he's literally been on trial, right? And so we saw our Lord kind of wrap up this ongoing trial that started in John 5, right? And carried through the whole Feast of the Tabernacles where he's still dealing with their anger about one particular incident on the Sabbath. And then to add insult to injury, in the middle of the feast, he heals again on the Sabbath right? The man born blind. Um, and so it gets them even more angry, right? And so they've wrapped up that feast. John 11's now the only chapter, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that maybe it's not, but it seems outwardly to be the only chapter not connected to the temple. Um, in that th the setting, the scene is not anything, it's not a feast, it's not a temple event, it's nothing right? The farewell speech will be everything before it has been. Um, but now we're seeing everything kind of wrap up, okay? So we've been saying that the theme of the Gospel of John is that is that the Word incarnate, God incarnate, right, has been coming and he's been constantly emphasizing, I'm not like you, right? I come from the, the world that is, right? Not the world of becoming. Nothing dies up there, Everything that becomes, everything that's made, everything that has a, a material origin dies. I don't, right? And so if you want to live for the things that don't die the way that you were originally created, right? Because that's how we were originally made as, as humans. We are given that gift of immortality and that gift of incorruption. He's saying, I can re-give that to you, but you need to believe me. Right. And so this question of do you believe, do you have faith is saying, because if, if you don't believe me, you, you don't get to participate. 
right? And so there's this question that's very common in the, in the Gospel of John of, do you believe? And actually, there are all the Gospels. Um, do you believe? Do you trust? Do you, do you believe that I can do this, right? And so he's now walked away from the temple that he clearly doesn't like. But to the people, they're obsessed with the ritual. They're, obsess they're obsessed with the temple, with the building, Right? They're obsessed with their history, with their genealogy, with their lineage, with their honor, with their respect, with their feasts. Right, And Christ didn't come to abolish any of those. He doesn't say, I, I, that's all wrong. He said, these serve a purpose, and you've completely forgotten the purpose. So if you're doing it as just these objects, then you are actually the same as an idolater. Right, And so this is a constant conflict between the temple and him. Right, And because he speaks with such charisma, they don't know how to deal with him because they keep on trying to challenge him and they can't answer him. And that drives them even more crazy. Because as we talked about in the very, very first talk, the, the, the background to New Testament culture, one of the currencies of the time, right? We live in a culture of limited good is honor, right? And so if you dishonor someone, honor was seen as this limited commodity. So there's only X amount of, of honor in the world. So if somebody has more, someone else automatically has less. Right. And the way to challenge someone's honor is to challenge them. Right. So it's to test them, challenge them, uh, question them, accuse them. If they answer satisfactorily. Right. Then they are now in a higher sp spot of honor. And the person who accused falsely becomes a lower. This becomes it's, it's shame. OK. And that's why it's not. An accident when you're reading the Bible to hear things like they wagged their heads at him. It's not just a, 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 a cultural thing today of just being like, oh, that's too bad. It's an intentional cultural way of saying, I shame you. You just lost. So it's a way of putting someone down. It's almost like, like we still today would view being spat on as an intentional act of shaming, right? That still survived that kind of culture, right? But wagging your heads was a sign of it. That's why, for example, when they're around Christ on the cross saying they all stood wagging their heads, they're not disappointed. They're actually shaming him. They're, they're, it's part of their mockery, right? And so the Jews, the leading Jews right now, the people who are leading the temple have been constantly put down because every time they've come to challenge the Lord, he's answered in a way that they cannot answer, Right. And so the, the, these leaders started off like with honor up here. And as this gospel has progressed, they've been coming down, 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 down. And this is what leads them to rage and envy. Right. Which is going to culminate in the epic trials. Right. That we're going to see in chapters 19 and 20. Right. Or 18, 19. Um, that's where it's all going to kind of blow up. OK. And the reason I'm saying that is because the, they're already worked up with all that's happened. And the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John is, ex is, is explicitly in the Gospel of John what causes Christ to be put to death, okay? So this is the turning point. So God has been coming with a message, right? He's delivered the message over and over. The people don't receive it. So the, think back to the prologue of John 1. He came unto his own, and his own receives him not, right? And so the, the evangelist gave us in the first chapter everything that's going to happen, Right. And then now we're going through it slow motion. Right. And so now he's he came unto his own. He gave them the message. They don't receive him. And now he's in this start of withdrawal. Right. Where he's preparing now for the passion. Whereas like I've done my preaching. I've delivered the gospel. I said what I needed to say. 
to everyone who wants to receive it and even to those who don't want to receive it. And that's the context now coming into John um, 11. Okay, this is the last of the major signs of the Gospel of John. All right, because in Gospel of John, he's very limited in what miracles as they're called in other Gospels. They're called signs in the Gospel of John um, that he presents. This is the last one, right? Because usually for the Gospel of John, he considers a real sign, one that makes people believe, not just an act of, of divine work, right? But one particularly that leads the people to believe in the presence of God. Um, and so the only other raising of the dead, because as you know, spoiler alert, Lazarus rises from the dead, right? Is that the only other times in, in, in scripture where this has happened is Elijah raising the widow's son and Elisha raising the Shunammite woman. Neither of them raised anybody on their own authority, right? Both of those prayed and asked God to do something, right? Whereas we're going to see the Lord pray but he's going to command on his own authority, right? He's not going to be like, hey, Father, could you do this? He's going to say, you do this. So this is a big change, right, from what people are, are used to. Um, and then this is going to carry us into the whole passion uh, narrative. Okay. So um, we will, I'm going to, I know, Mark, you don't like this, but I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to read it in pieces and stop. Um, even though this one we could probably read as a narrative completely. Actually, you know what? Let, we will read it just for your sake, Mark, because it's a shorter one. All right. Um, I'm going to, I usually share everybody to read, but because online everyone thinks we stop talking and then we get a million comments and we can't hear you. Um, I'll read out loud from here. So I'm sorry. I would rather you guys participate, but I'll get stoned either way. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not unto death, for it is for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to go into Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Thus he spoke and then he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Then Jesus told, uh, then for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the son of God, he who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying quietly, the teacher is here and it's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. There was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you, I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. We'll read the last part after that, the, the aftermath of, uh, of this miracle. So we'll start from the top. Um, there's an interesting, this is not in, in, in scripture, this is a, a hypothesis um, that that might be the case. So Lazarus or an Aramaic Lazar, right? Same as in Arabic is um, a name that means God helps. Um, and he is in the house of Bethany and his house is in the city of Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's within walking distance of Jerusalem. And we'll see, for example, in the gospel of Mark, he spends all of Holy Week in Bethany. He doesn't want to be in Jerusalem. Now, the reason I'm bringing up his name is that there's something strange going on here, right? And we, we see right from the beginning that the, that the evangelist is giving us a sneak peek of what's going to happen later because this is the same Martha or Mary who washes his feet. And that doesn't happen actually till the next chapter, right? But he's, he's referencing it already. And as you know from the scriptures, we have an account of a woman washing feet in all four gospels. In this gospel, it's identified as Mary. In other gospels, it's not. In most gospels, it says that it's in the house of Simon, a leper. Um, and in the Gospel of John, it's, it's, it's Lazarus, who we know nothing about. Um, so what is a possibility um, is, is that this Lazarus is actually, um, his name might be Simon Eleazar. So from the year 6 AD, and this is going to come up again, especially into the trial, Rome took over temple administration they would appoint the high priest, okay? So from the year 6 AD on, Rome was choosing who is the high priest. And a high priest was supposed to be for life. And as we can see even from the gospels, they've been replacing them, right? Because we see Caiaphas, right? Then we see Annas, right? We see all these different names that are 
all high priests. There's a record of a high priest before the year six, who is only in office for a couple of years, if I remember correctly, whose name was Simon Eleazar. And he was abruptly removed from office. And the reason I'm bringing up that it's before Rome appointed is because if he was removed before Rome started appointing, it means something wrong happened, right? Because it's supposed to be for life. And this Simon Eleazar actually had two sisters named Mary and Martha. Um, and so it would not be shocking if he had acquired leprosy and that would be grounds to remove him um, from his high priesthood um, because you can't have an unclean person um, acting as a high priest. That's against the, the, the law, right? And so it could very well be that this is Simon Ele Eleazar is the, is, is, the, is the Greek name for Lazarus. It's not a different name, right? So Lazarus to the Greek would have been named Eleazar. Um, and so it could be that this Simon the leper is Lazarus um, and that some are using his surname, his first name and others are using his Jewish name um, or his, uh, his Greek name, sorry. Um, and that that's still a link to the temple. Just a story. No one has to believe it. It's a, it's a credible idea. And I think something that would match the narrative. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, that every story is somehow connected to the temple, that he was a high priest, right? Um, and not just any high priest, but a shamed one, right? Because even, even if you look at the other gospels and it says he, that he entered in the house of Simon the leper, there's no way Simon is still a leper, whoever he is, whether it's Eleazar or not, right? Because no Jew is allowed to enter a home with someone's leprosy. Actually, the leper has to be outside of the city, right? Screaming leper, leper, right? According to the law. So whoever it is was healed. Um, and it could very well be um, that this is who, who it is. Um, it's also interesting that this is the only place in the Gospel of John where it refers to a specific person as being beloved. Um, but that's its own uh, discussion. Um, so that's who, who Lazarus might be. Um, and I say today I'm, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit more, maybe more meditational than usual. usual. Um, I think it's interesting that if he was a high priest, right, that it's his, it's his sister who's this sinful woman, right, in the gospel narrative, right? Because we, we tend to think that holy people, right, that everything about them is perfect, nothing goes wrong. Right. And we and we hold people to a higher scrutiny. Right. You look at the priest kids. Sorry. Um, and uh, the pastor's kids. We have even the title PK. Right. For, for somebody's kid. Right. Where there's this social expectation that they're going to be good. Right. And then there's this expectation that everything that happened in that family is there. So it's very interesting that actually we have a lot of examples scripturally where the family of the of the holy people um are not very holy right jacob suffers a lot with his family right eli the priest like a lot blows up because of his kids right there's there's all sorts of stories and here we have the the sister of, of lazarus um who may have been a high priest um and so the the, the really the idea should not be whether somebody can sin or not obviously um the problem is if we give preferential treatment, right? Or cloak sin as righteousness, right? Because God dealt with Eli's kids in a very rough way, like rough to, to us anyway. Um, whereas 
he's clearly done something really nice um, with Lazarus's um, family. Okay. Um, two, 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 two. Because she probably has history, right? So it's not clear to us whether she's currently in sin, okay, or whether her reputation precedes her and so they're outcasts. And neither would shock me when it comes to Christ because he was more than happy to sit with social rejects. Right. And so we don't know chronologically when whatever change in her happened, if it did. There's another tradition that maybe she is the one who had the demons and not Mary Magdalene. That's like there's a lot of confusion about the Marys and about this this sinner woman because the. Yeah. I can go on about that, but it'll get uh, controversial because I think it depends on the 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 reason that the evangelist writes what they write on some level, right? Where I could tell a story, and for example, I just said sorry, Juju, right? And I identify that he's a PK, right? But another person might not have made that comment. Right. And so another person might have been like, and George is there who happened to be the son of a priest. Right. So it could be really benign and trivial. Right. But it's it depends on what's the reason for it. The evangelist in Gospel of John does a lot to show I was there. I get it. Right. Because he puts so much effort into locations, landmarks. Right. And my view more than the others. Or like, oh, yeah, that's why the place called this, which is still called that, right? Or like, and then he traveled in such and such direction, came to this city. This is a local, right? Versus like, I barely know Vancouver, right? So I might randomly name a city, right? But somebody who's from here would be like, yeah, 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 that was by like Portman Bridge, right? Or that was before they built that bridge or when they got rid of the tools. A person who's local has like that history. Because when you guys are talking, I pick up on that. I'm like, I'm, there's never been tools since I came, right? So could be any of those. So the sister sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And I'm going to say some things that might not be liked. It's not wrong <laughs> sometimes that God has favorites. He loves everyone equally, okay? But here they're appealing to a particular affection. Right. And, and even within the circle of disciples, he has Peter, James and John. Right. There's no there's no hiding it. Right. Even the whole gospel of John is the beloved disciple, the beloved disciple, the one who he loves. Right. Um, and you, you, you definitely get a sense of rivalry among um, the apostles. Um, but that it can be that a person. Finds favor or preference for somebody. Right. Um, I think when it comes to God, it's whoever is most like him, right? He loves them all equal, love being a choosing of them, denying ourselves. That is all equal, right? And I, it, it sucks for me to say this because of my brother, but where I can understand that a parent could love all kids equally, but like one in a different way, <laughs> right? Where it's just like, okay, where, where they can be like, no, but me and this kid, we get each other, we jive, 
right? We're able to speak openly heart to heart. Whereas this person, I love them, I'll do anything for them, but we can't talk about these issues, for example, right? And so we see that, and the reason I bring this up is saying that if Christ is our model of perfect humanity, right? That it's not necessarily a wrong thing, um, that you have a particular leaning towards a particular person, right? That doesn't mean that you don't love other people. But the word here that, that has been translated as love is actually more in the like zone. It's, the, it's philanthropic love, not agape love, okay? So it's more like saying the one that you like is, is ill. But God is himself, Christ is going to use the agape one shortly, like the, the, the deeper one. Um, but closeness between two people is a matter of sharing, as we said, with this whole favorite or liking somebody, having similar thoughts, ideas, compatibility, right? Um, but I'm saying that because sometimes we, we struggle with knowing how to kind of deal with God. And one of the things to consider, I'm not giving a whole talk on that right now, is whether you're like him, because you're made in, in his image and likeness, right? And so do you resemble him? Are you looking for something common that you have with him and, do, and developing that, right? Are you using your gifts? Are you using the thing that you have from God, right? Because if you do, you'll relate to God more and you'll feel God's interaction to you more, right? Because you're, you're sharing in something common, right? Like, I don't know anything about football. So if you were to try and get me to like, join some like, what's it called fantasy football thing, I, I'd have no idea, right? Your guess is good as mine, because I'm not into it. Right? So I would just be like, yeah, that's interesting. That's nice. Right? But if it was a sport that I do like, I don't I'm not having to be good at any but basketball and someone's on here who did my roster for me. Thank you. Um, but if I'm really into it, I'm going to naturally be into it, right? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been following, I've been watching. So the same thing with God about using virtue, using gifts. And there's a sense of intercession here in what these women are saying, right? They're saying, hey, the one you like is there. We know you like us. Can you please come, right? They're, they're calling in a favor, essentially, right now. And then the Lord hears it and said, this illness is not to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. This is one of only two places in the Gospel of John where Christ refers to himself as the Son of God. The only other place was in John 5, right? He doesn't usually use that title. Um, and it's interesting to note because there's some titles that he never uses. Um, and so it's interesting that he's saying that this illness, illness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. That is not the same as saying God did it so he can be glorified actually it's interesting i haven't been using a lot of patristics in these bible studies because I'm, my focus has been more about what is the text saying plainly um but i i chuckled when i was reading uh saint Cyril of alexandria um because he like paused on this verse um and he's just like this is not to say that sickness came on lazarus so that god should be glorified as though god harm someone to then glorify himself he goes even consider that would be silly um and so like he's like that's a non-starter essentially um and he goes but the sickness had come upon lazarus christ knew that foresaw it and is using it um for belief right as we're going to see um now jesus loved 
And this is the, the, the divine love, agape love, not just like, okay? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, which is also really important because we always tend to favor Mary, right? We're always like, oh, the Lord loved Mary, right? Because in chapter 12, when they're chilling in the house and Mary's sitting with Jesus and Martha's doing the housework, right? And he praises Mary. Martha gets the bad rap all the time, whereas she's the hero of, of chapter 11, um, bar, bar none, which we'll see shortly with the profession of faith. Yes, but we tend to always talk about Mary and she's the monastic and she's the meditative, she, like the, the image of this devotion, right? But we kind of tend to socially put down Martha, even engineers when they wear their ring, they have a, in their cult, um, they <laughs> taking shots. Um, they they read a poem about Martha as being the one that nobody cares about, but she's she's the true G. Um, but Martha is going to say some things here that are are big, even though she's clearly going to be struggling. Um, so it's very interesting. Pay attention to the wording and what follows. Be saying now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus, but then when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer. Those seem like contradictory phrases. He's like, he loves them very much. And knowing that they're sick, he decides not to go, right? Which is, which is not common sense, right? Where it would be like, I thought if you liked him or loved him, you'd go there. And he's like, nope. Um, and so we're going to see in verse 15 what he wants to do with it, right? But the reason I'm saying it is that um, we culturally... And a lot of atheists will be like, oh, and where was God when? Like, like, that, like to demand that the only way of showing love is to physically do what I demand of a person, right? And to not ever be able to think bigger than the situation and to even think that someone else might think differently than myself, right? Because here there's this expression of love and then this intentional, I'm not going. Um, and, and he's going to explain himself, as we said in verse 15, so we'll get there. Um, but these two are not mutually exclusive, loving somebody and being there. After this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said, and this is where like John has a lot of funny moments with the apostles. Um, because as we said before starting to read, they just walked out of a massive fight that ended with them attempting to kill him. Right? Like they raised stones to kill him and he, and he bounces. Right? And he's like, let's go back. Right. And the disciples respond being like, uh, teacher, um, you know that the Jews were like literally just about to stone you and you're saying, let's go back. Right. And you see the real humanity of them being like, what's wrong with you? Right. Like, are we going to go die? And Thomas is going to outright say that in, in a second. But I like that the Gospels doesn't hide the carnality, the humanity of the disciples. Right. They're, they're afraid. Right. For all of the miracles they've seen of Christ, for all the things on edge right they're still anxious they're still worried right why would you go back to a place where they want you dead is the question right and that's human logic and it's true it's a fair question why would you want to go back to where they want to kill you why would he right and that's the question that because the lord is truth he doesn't struggle with but we because we're supposed to be seeking truth should be struggling with is asking the question of okay, choosing this is going to cause me severe discomfort, possibly death. Why would I? Right? Christ didn't 
struggle with why would I because he doesn't have a struggle within himself about truth. We do, right? But our answer should come back to truth, right? Because it would be wrong to do this, therefore I won't, right? If I don't know the gospel, I won't know how to choose, then I will only choose according to my humanity, right? And just be like, oh, that's uncomfortable to have this stance, I won't have it. Or it's uncomfortable to say no to this activity or this event or this whatever, right? If I know what the truth is, I'll struggle less. I might be uncomfortable, but I won't have a struggle about the decision. I just might have a struggle with the effect, right? But I'll be able to choose the thing that's that's right. And so that that's a comes to a question of valuing, right? What do you value? Because when you choose between something and another thing, right here, Christ is choosing to go to Judea or not, to go to Bethany or not. It becomes a question of value. Do I value my life more than truth? If so, I won't go to Judea. Right? It's a simple, it's a simple question. But you, when you're asking yourself these questions, you have to ask yourself, what do you value? Right? Because the whole gospel of John has been saying, do you want the fake stuff or the real stuff? Do you want real living water or do you want fake water? Or do you want temporal water? Do you want water that ends, that doesn't fill you? Do you want true light? Or do you want your little flashlights? Do you want real life? Or do you want human version of life? Right? These are the things that we are, are struggling with when we make our decisions. Right? And he spent a long time. That's what I'm saying. This, this coming to a conclusion of his teaching, right, is John 1 through 10. He spent a long time telling them that everything that they take comfort in is temporary. Right? Everything is going to end. Right? Um, their water, their food, their system, even their lives, right? Um, but the disciples still can't see past the veil of the temple. They're not there yet, right? They're still taken by that. They are fleshly and earthly, which I am too. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. The light of this world, he's now speaking the language, is the sun. Right. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Right. Um, Jews thought this, this is that expression kind of gets lost on us, but culture, not just the Jews, but people at the time at the time had this concept that light was in a person. Right. That if you like the act of seeing is because there's light on the inside. Right. And so that's why he's saying um, they can't see at night because the light's not in him. He's referring it in him as something's not working. Right. He spoke this, then he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Again, the evangelist is showing how unintelligent the disciples are, right? It's very comical, but this is totally us, right, today, right? Where they're like, oh, he's asleep, no biggie. No problem, that's the issue. He'll wake up, it's good, he's getting some rest, right? That's all he needs, some R&R. He'll be back to, to like, normal before no time right and they're it's funny because they're it's like they forget that jesus is not normal right they don't get that he's god yet right but they're still treating him like their buddy right and it's like even though he randomly knows things he shouldn't know so he's like he's asleep and like oh well then don't you worry about him jesus right where it's like who said he was worried right like he's just gonna get some rest everything's gonna be fine and I think we speak like that all the time. Someone tells someone they're, they're sick and have cancer. And then they ask what stage, right? And they go, oh, stage one, like, oh, thank heavens, that's easy. You've got great prognosis, chip her up, 
right? Where we just blurt out random stuff as if that's what the person necessarily wants to hear, right? Where we, we, we just, no filter, right? Um, or someone says, I had a problem at work today. Oh, don't worry, it'll settle, right? And then the person will probably think, well, actually, I, I got fired, <laughs> right? And then you're like, oh, right? Don't be fast to speak, right? Don't be so quick to have your analysis and your and your your comments and your one-liners listen to what people are saying ask questions right don't be so fast to assert don't provide answers without knowledge right or you do more harm than good so falling asleep in hebrew and in greek both secular and religiously to sleep can be a euphemism for death right even culturally today that's still a thing um but the disciples didn't get it right they thought he literally that went to sleep um but what's interesting what they say is that the word that they use here saying if he has fallen asleep he'll recover is actually a form of of the greek word that means to save and so there's a there's a bit of an irony here right of being like maybe it's good that he sleeps because then he'll be saved and the the irony is that that's actually what's going to happen right but that's not what he means right and so they're saying it haphazardly but it's actually true that is what's going to happen and that many people will be saved from it um and so the evangelist is playing on this theme of spiritual salvation um as he will get up now jesus had spoken of his death but as we said they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep so then jesus says to them plainly I don't know. I would love sometimes there's so many parts in these next few chapters where I really want to know what tone of voice the Lord was work using <laughs> when he responded, right? Like it's to me, he's like, Lazarus is dead, right? He might've said it very friendly, but he might've been like, okay, you don't get it. He's dead. Okay. And then he says, and for your sake, he explains now what we said before, why he's delayed. It says he chose not to go for two days. And he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe, right? Because like the goal of this is belief. I'm going to use this natural wrong, this natural evil for something good. Um, but let us go to him. Thomas called the twin or Didymus in Greek, said to his fellow disciples, might not be Greek, I don't know what language Didymus is. Let us also go that we may die with him. It is not clear if Thomas is being sarcastic or genuine here, but I, I love it. Um, like Thomas never has a problem speaking his mind. Um, and so when he's like, let's go. And then Thomas is just saying, yeah, let's go. It's all done. And it says specifically, he says it's the disciples. So it seems to be this muttering to the boys, um, scenario and not having, like not saying it to Christ. Um, and I love that about Thomas, because when you see Thomas in a few chapters, um, Christ is like where I'm going, you know, and the way, you know. And I have this like image of them all like nodding and like, yes, Lord, and all this stuff. And Thomas is the only one who pauses and he's like, I actually don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where you're going. Um, and so he's always has that character who's willing to be like, no, pause. I don't get it. Um, and what's beautiful about this is seeing and we're seeing throughout this, this chapter how God just accepts people where they're at, right? Where he doesn't demand Thomas change his personality, right? He doesn't demand that Martha or Mary or any of them do. He takes them where, where they're at. Um, whereas Thomas is like, Thomas is being real because it's clear from this, what he's saying. He 
gets it, where he's like, no, this is not going to be good, right? They, they already want to kill us, right? This is not going to get better, right? So he's, he's a realist. Um, this has been scandal after scandal for them. Um, just side note, there's a theory that he's called the twin because he really looked like the Lord. Um, but there's, that's just a theory. He might actually have a twin. There's, a, there's a, a billion theories we don't know. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, or 3.2 kilometers. Now, um, the Lord is going to go to Bethany a lot. As we said, it's just outside of, of Jerusalem and the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, he comes on after Palm Sunday, literally looks at the temple, it says, and walks away and doesn't come back until crucifixion. Um, so Bethany is walking distance um, to the temple. And so it's a, it's a nice hub for him. And for him to even be at Lazarus' house, this, this much shows that they must have been really tight. Now, it was important that Lazarus be dead for four days, okay, um, to ensure that he was dead because the Jews had a custom that a soul would hover near the body um, for three days um, after um, a person's death. And then when, that, when the soul left, there was no hope of resuscitation, right? So it was probably very intentional that the Lord waited for to say, if you had any doubt that he's dead, even based on your own traditions, he's dead. Right. So it was very important that he, he waited. And that's probably why he intentionally added two more days. Right. I mean, like, so by the time I get there, he's dead, dead, dead as a doornail. Um, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them or to give condolences concerning their brother. Um, so in, in a warm climate, they don't embalm. Right, they they would bury people right away after their death, which is partially why I think even in our own rituals in the Coptic Church, why we have like ritual prayers that happen on the third day and other days. I suspect it has something to do with because we'd bury them right away, um, because you can preserve. We weren't doing this embalming, we weren't mummifying like like the ancient Egyptians did, um, and so there was a way of doing a prayer with the family later. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so. Um, in the culture, in the Jewish culture, uh, men and women would have done separate funeral processions. They'd have been separated, right? And so when the women are on their own, there's a reason why it's Martha and her, and her friends, her female friends, right? Where there's not the, these guys over with them. Um, they would be doing this mourning ritual for 30 days. And this mourning included loud wailing and dramatic expression of grief. And I'm laughing because that's still a thing in the Mediterranean <laughs> and I didn't know um and one time when I was in Minya in Egypt I went to get like my, my haircut um I was like in in like high school late high school or something and I'm walking out of the barber shop and suddenly someone like screams like bloody murder from a balcony and then everyone's screaming and I thought like thought there's like a terror attack um and so my cousin started laughing he's, he's like they're just mourning I'm like that's morning. Um, it's this. It's dramatic. They scream. They wail. They pour ashes. They tear clothes. Right. It's it's a very dramatic cultural practice, um, and so they're taking turns. They'll go to the tomb, scream, cry out, and go back. Right to show their honor, and then they'd all wear black, 
right? In our culture, in Egyptian culture, we've preserved a lot of that where you wear black for a long time, right? You might find a widow doesn't wear black, wear color even to a wedding, right? There's these, they're, they're just customs. They're not religious per se, um, but just cultural expressions of grief. Um, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I, I don't, like I said, I don't think we credit Martha a lot. Look at this kind of prayer. This is prayer. Okay. She's in the presence of God and she's talking to him. And she's not afraid to challenge him. Right. Like, because I think I'm not saying that we need to be audacious and, and, and irreverent with God. But at the same time, we can have this boldness to say to God, hey, where were you? Right. And that's what Martha is saying. I thought we were friends. I thought we were friends. Where were you? If you were here, he wouldn't be dead. And she's right. There's a good chance. You're not 100 percent right. He might not have healed him. We don't know. Right. But she's right to say it. Um, and there is a there's a story I was trying to remember um, that I heard from Ambabulis in Ottawa about this, but if I can remember it, I'll, I'll come back to it. But it's okay to challenge God when you're actually in relationship with God, right? So for example, I don't know you two, right? So if I were to come at you two and just start screaming at you, right? You might rightly be like, what's wrong with that guy, right? Whereas if we have a deep established relationship, you might be able to boldly be like, hey, why are, you, why are you yelling at me, right? Or you might know me well enough to be able to say, hey, like, what's going on? You might know how to calm me down. You might guess what's going on. Relationship gives the ability to have boldness, right? It's only in that context of relationship that we can find that boldness or that, or that favor. Um, because as much as she's saying a challenge, she's also clearly reveres him and has faith. She just walked away from the culture tradition, right? She could have moped and be like, nope, not going, right? She left the cultural tradition and she went to find him, right? To present her petition to him. Um, but speak, so if we're going to do something like that, we need to speak with a willingness to hear, right? Because prayer is supposed to be a dialogue, not a monologue. Right. So if you think it's okay to just yell and demand God to speak in your way, that's not really safe or holy. Right. But if you are being you and trust that God is God, right, that you're allowing God to be who he is, yes, you can. Right. Then all things become lawful. Right. Because there's, there's, it's, it's seated in love. Right. It's seated in, in that denial for the other. Um, her and Mary are both calling Jesus. Lord, um, it's hard to tell what's always meant by Lord in the Gospels, because Lord can mean sir, right? So usually when it's being used by a Gentile um, or, or a Pharisee or one of the leaders, usually it's probably being meant to be sir. When it's coming from a believer, it could be a divine recognition. It seems to be with Martha that it is because of what she's going to say shortly about who she says he is, right? But um, so Martha has challenged him. She goes, but, right? So she didn't just yell and scream and walk away. She's like, okay, if you were here, he would not have died. But even now, at this instant with my brother dead, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
And this is one of those, I think this kind of exchange is really funny because Christians can be really fake, right? And we like to say one-liners to pacify people, right? Of it all happens for a reason, right? Where it's like, like let me find something that makes you calm down. And it's not helpful to many of us in the situation, right? Um, it might be when things get better, but in the moment, it's not. And so when the Lord is saying to her, your brother will rise again, she's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know eventually he will rise. I'm kind of stuck about right now, right? So she's, she thinks that the Lord is talking about this future resurrection. Um, Jesus said to her, you don't get it. I am the name of God. And again, remember that the way it's being said is that he's is it considered like he's pointing at himself every time he says, I am, right? He's saying the name of God, I am, which is God, which is me, right? I am is the resurrection life. It's me. I am the actual source of rising and living. So the person you're dealing with, the person you're talking to is the one who can do that. And that's why there is a very important question. He who believes in me, though he die, will he live? And so now I need to ask you something, Martha. Do you believe this? Right? He asks her that. And so she evades a direct answer, but she still answers one of the most profound statements in the Gospel of John. Yes, Lord. Not only do I believe, right? All, all, all he asked her was, was, people who believe in me won't die. Can you believe in that? And she says, not only do I believe that, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, but you are also the son of God. He who is coming into the world. In the Gospel of John, this is the only person who makes this specific profession of faith. Peter doesn't, right? Peter does in the synoptics. But in the Gospel of John, it is only Martha who does this. I'm saying Martha is a big deal, right? Like this is, this, is, this is the seeing that we talked about in John 10. She's, it's like they're all, he's trying to another way not just see like worldly seeing and for her that veil is moving right because she's not fully there yet as we're going to see also momentarily but she sees something and she makes a profession of faith which is monumental i don't know that i i i highly doubt that i would have had that faith right remember that he hasn't risen from the dead yet right they don't know his identity yet so for her to be like yeah i believe that but she's still a little bit confused where she's like okay no i am it's not personal. I, I believe that you're something great, but I don't know how that connects to my dead brother right now, right? So she's still also very human. It's this very, I think, beautiful image of the struggle that's within us, right? About the divine and about the material world. Um, another way of, of saying what Christ said is that, is that he, if you want to reword it, he's saying the believer, if he dies physically, yet he will live spiritually. The spiritually will never die spiritually. That's another way of rewording verses 25 and 26, because it's very, very wordy um, to read in, in contemporary English. So our Lord, as is typical in this gospel, inquires of her belief. Um, and that she's able to wrestle with where she's at. Like she's expressing faith, but she also doesn't get it. Um, and then there's this, really important part so when she had said this 
she went and called her sister Mary saying quietly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Obviously, we're not told that Christ called for her in that conversation. So it seems to be they talked a little longer, right? Um, and, he, and so she goes back to Mary and says, hey, um, the Lord is, is out there and wants to see you. Mary finds out and she goes quickly to him. Now, Jesus hadn't come yet to the village because we said they're in this procession back and forth to the tomb. So he hasn't entered Bethany proper yet. Um, and so he's still where he had met Martha and now Mary's there. Um, and then the Jews who were with her in the house, giving their condolences, when they saw Mary rise, they go out to follow her and they thought she was going to go back for continuing, continuing the, this whole wailing um, ritual. Um, that's actually, by the way, one of the reasons why Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, right? She would have been performing this ritual. Um, like she would have been wailing and, and doing all of that. Um, now, then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Mary is making the same accusation as Martha, right? Which is, so this family is, is, is involved. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The Greek is, is hard to translate for this deeply moved in spirit and troubled um, because it means a bunch of things like he shuddered. He was moved literally with the deepest emotions, right? This is a very, very, very visceral response. Um, and this is the very Jewish way of saying like actually anger. And that's why it's a confusing word to, to use um, because it's a display of, of indignation. Um, and so obviously the Lord's not mad at them. And that's why I'm like, sometimes knowing the original language matters because knowing what is really meant by this, and I'm not claiming I know what's really meant by this, but if it is meant more as an indignation, the reason for his weeping might not be what we've thought it was. Right, because it might be his his actual upsetness at this disease of sin and death that's killing his kids. Right, where it's like imagine imagine if forgive me you're at the funeral of somebody who was murdered, and that's your kid. Right, your your visceral response is going to be expressed as grieving, but there might be a genuine upsetness about what happened. Right, that's also driving it. And this shows you the pastoral aspect of Christ too, right? Not just his human fullness of humanity, right? That he can relate to the sense of loss, but also um, to his sadness, his sternness, his upsetness over the condition of his kids. Um, and he answers, where have you laid him? And this answer to me is one of the deepest, most sad lines in the gospel of john where if you don't connect it to john one it'll just fly over your head he said where have you laid him and they said to him lord come and see because in john one when the lord started appearing and it was clear he was not some normal guy the disciples wanted to become disciples and they said hey where do you live and we had just been presented that Jesus lives in the bosom of the Father, right? That his place, his real place in the world of is, 
is in God the Father. And so Christ says, come and see. Where he's really saying to them, let me reveal to you the immaterial. Let me reveal to you true light. Let me reveal to you life, light, water, the world of, of all that is true and real and is. When that's his answer, to come and see. But when the world says, come and see, they're taking you to, an, to a, a tomb of dead people. It perfectly encapsulates everything the Gospel of John has been saying. This world is death, period. And all the world has to offer you is death because everything dies. Fame, bodies, health, relationships, jobs, money, politics, power, whatever your God is, whatever your fixation is, they die, right? And so when the world says, come and see, they're pointing at death. That's where they are. And, and that makes me wonder if that's why the immediate response of the Lord is, and Jesus wept, right? Where part of him might be genuinely weeping, I'm sure part was, over this sadness of loss. But I think part of it is also his sadness that this is the state of my people and my world and my, and my children, right? Nothing, nothing can be said to express the beauty in my view of that short verse, not just from that understanding of the, of the mortality and the, the finality of the world, right? But also I think that Christians have become functionally monophysite. And by that, what I mean is we believe that Jesus is really God and really man, but we tend to really cancel out the man part, right? Even though we believe he was really man. And we as Christians tend to always want to act like we don't have real emotions and real reactions to things, right? Whereas here we see the Lord himself, the Lord who knows he's going to raise him up momentarily, right? Still weeps, right? Still weeps over the loss of his friend. Um, I remember actually once being at a funeral, um, there was a consolation, a similar scenario where some guy got up and started yelling at the woman whose son had just died and said, you're a Christian, you can't be sad. And I'm like, well, who said, like, if, if, if Jesus wept, I'm pretty sure that this mom can weep, right? What could be right or wrong would be the reason for weeping. Right, like yes, we believe in the resurrection. I can I can weep at the the sense of of material loss. I can weep at the sense of this relationship now not having the same form. Um, we have not a as as Saint Paul says in Hebrews, for we not we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect being tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm quoting this to say, these are some moments where we look at Christ. We tend to say, where was God when X, Y, and Z happened and completely forget that Christ himself went through all of those things himself, right? And so because of it, we have a companion in our grief. He's not distant from our grief. He joins us. Um, in our grief. So when you're afflicted with anything, think on and realize that our Lord went through that, right? We have confidence in things when we know that something's doable, 
right? Otherwise, we reconcile to the futility of a matter, right? For example, if I know that someone is able to, through refugee status, obtain citizenship, citizenship, then I'll be less afraid to try it, right? If I know that's possible to do something, then I can have some level of hope. But if no one has gone through it successfully, then I don't have hope. Um, so when we know that our Lord went through something, then he's not just empathizing, right? Empathizing is the ability to put yourself in someone's place. Christ is able to not just empathize, but also sympathize because he actually went through it. Um, okay. So like I said, this is the clashing of worlds. And that to me is the pinnacle of the message, not the pinnacle of the gospel, the pinnacle of the message. Um, where there's this crashing of mortality, this fake, the water of tears, water is not real, this is not the living water, is crashing, and the Lord now is going towards his glory, his moment of glory, which in the Gospel of John is death, right? It's the crucifixion. Um, so this world of immortal and immortal are now colliding in this person of, of Christ and in this act that's about to, to happen. So the Jews looked at him crying, and they say, see how he loved him, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? There's always that guy, right? There's always that person who always has something negative to say, no matter what, right? Where it's like, there's a death. This person is crying. Some people are like, oh, wow, how sad. Sad. this is nice that he's grieving with us and there's that there's got to be that one guy of like isn't this his fault right and finding the negative thing to zoom in on i think our culture is really good at this um where all we do is point out something wrong right if if the government doesn't have a policy we all scream when they put in policy it's about time why don't you do it before right but there's never like oh it is good that we have x Right. If somebody got into something, it's like, oh, why didn't you do this? I think because I didn't. Right. Let's zoom in on what's good. Um, be careful. I'm going to try and zoom through. I didn't realize how long I'm taking my bed. Um, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay on it. OK, so Jesus, as we know, he says, take the stone away. Right. And, and Martha, who was like, I kind of believe a minute or two ago is now like, no, 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 no. Like now it's going to stink right? Bad idea. Um, he's been dead for four days. And so Jesus looks at her and he's just like, yeah, you might not have been sure, but I'm sure. Didn't I tell you if you believe that you would see that he would rise and see the glory of God? So he commands him to take away the stone. And here the Lord explicitly says why he's praying, right? Where he, he goes out of his way out loud to say what he's doing. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Not you will hear me. You've already heard me right? Whatever I say is as if it's you already. I know that you always hear me, but I'm actually saying this because of these people who are standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. That's why I'm talking, right? He's being explicit about it. Um, because sometimes we also make, think people are making things up when we're saying, oh, maybe God did it in order to show us something. Yes, God does do that. He said it, right? He said it explicitly. Um, and this is similar to what Elijah said when he raised from the dead, because he said, answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. But now Christ is saying the similar word, but now it's him that's going to say, right? And so here is the Lord going to the place of death in order to give life. This is the self-emptying of God, 
right? And this tomb is the epitome of everything he's been teaching them, but they still don't get it. This is where carnality ends up, wasting away, rotting in death. It's worms, it's stinky, right? It's the end of everything carnal. And we spend all of our lives trying not to get there, but we all end up there. We're all looking for the philosopher's stone, right? The elixir of life, like all these quests for immortality. We all want to avoid death. We can freeze ourselves. We're looking for any way to not, not confront death. The Lord is the opposite. He's walking straight up to death and saying, you're nothing. It's irrelevant. There's more than this. There's a possibility of real life because he's like, he's even like, I'm going to raise this guy and he's going to die again because even this isn't real life, right? This, all of this is easy for me, but real life isn't this, right? Um, he is resurrection. And he's saying, I can raise him. And I think we read the story and we get all hyped up and we all forget that Lazarus ends up dying again. Right? John is the new Genesis. We talked about that first line is the exact same as Genesis. And we're reminded that death came into the world through sin. Right? As you're saying, that we have the gift of incorruption and mortality. And our Lord is coming to fix that. And people don't get it. They want this carnal resurrection. They want this don't ever separate me from my friends kind of resurrection. And that's not resurrection, that's resuscitation, right? Technically, that's a better word for what it is. We want to be resuscitated. We don't want to be resurrected. We don't want new life, right? We just want this. Um, but he still stoops to our needs. He's like, okay, sure, no problem. Um, I'll raise Lazarus, even though he's going to die again. And I'm saying that so that you can think about what you're asking God when you ask for things. Are you asking for the stuff that dies? Um, what stone are you putting in front of your tomb to hide from the stench of death? Right? There's a, a bishop that, I, that I, I've known for a long time from when he was a hermit. Um, and when he was a hermit, um, I used to visit him in his cave once in a while. And he had this thing that I think people would find really morbid, but I think is brilliant because he really got this concept. He had on a piece of paper by his workstation and in his pocket, one word, death. I was like, what's uh, up with that? Cause that's weird. Um, and he was like, whenever I have a stray thought, whenever I have a sinful thought, whenever I have a sinful desire, I read it and remember that's gonna happen. Right. And it, and it brings me back in check. That's the difference between hiding behind that cave door or not. Um, and so when he said this, he yells. He doesn't just quietly. It says he cried with a loud voice, same way he did in the temple. And the same way that it'll say that he did from the cross um, is that he yells out, Lazarus, come out. He orders on his own authority, not in the name of God, not, oh, God, call him out in his own authority. Lazarus come out right now and immediately Lazarus comes forth um, still with the bandages and the cloths and everything and the Lord just simply says unbind him and let him go which shows you how disinterested God was in this act right where it's like okay yeah here he's alive are you happy right now you'll believe who I am I did this for you believe right is he I did this because I feel badly for Lazarus he said I did this so that you believe this is what you need okay and then he walks away, but he's not like, now let's party, right? Like, he's just like, okay, cool, here's Lazarus. And then he pieces out. And it is this now that we see from the Gospel of John, 
this is now the plot to put Jesus to death. The Jews who had come to Mary and with Mary and Martha saw what he did. They believed in him, but there's a group that doesn't like it and they go running to the Pharisees, right? Again, there's always those people who are not excited that somebody who is dead is now living. They go to the Pharisees, they go to the leaders, they go to the priests and say, hey, that guy is up to no good. He just raised someone. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. So this is now a holy synod meeting, right? They've had their first one now where they've literally brought them all together and said, what are we going to do? This man is doing all sorts of signs. And if we let him go on like this, verse 48, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Um, I'm going to explain that more because I know I've gone over time. Sorry. I'll explain. That's a very loaded sentence, extremely loaded politically. Um, why they're saying that. Because they're not joking. They're not being like, they're, they're serious. The Romans, if they got a, if, if a peep comes out of the temple, the Romans are ready to squash the Jews completely. Right. And that's why Caiaphas says, you know what? Because some of the people are being like, but how could he be a bad guy who's doing miracles? And he's like, it almost doesn't matter. It's better that he die than, than we all die. Right. And so, and it's because of what they were heard from the Romans. I'll explain that more when we get to the official trial. Um, and so he was prophesying. I'm going to, you know what? I think I'll just, I won't read that last part. We'll use it next time. I'll come back to visit. It's just that, like, there's some important points that I just don't want to skip. Um, but I want to leave you guys with some questions to ask yourselves from this chapter, like not to answer out loud, but ask yourselves in your own meditations, in your own way of dealing with God right what we're seeing right now sorry is is i mean politics is what ends up killing christ and politics seems to be everywhere but do i participate in the politics am i the one who runs over to gossip to bring out negative to be like hey did you hear right do we have martha's boldness in her prayer do we have that her honesty do we have thomas's faithfulness in spite of feeling fear, right? As much as Thomas was able to say out loud, yo, we're going to die, he still goes, right? Which is very inspiring, right? Do we have that element of Thomas, right? I like just looking at these characters and thinking, where do I relate? Where do I not? Where could I be more like them? Um, are we members of this fake Sanhedrin? Do we get together with people at our churches and in our groups and act like we run the world, right? And judge the heck out of everybody? Right. And everything everybody does and everything who doesn't think like us. Right. And look for data to feed us. Um, are we one of the disbelieving outsiders watching a miracle where we can see a beautiful thing and still hate it? Are we the kind of people who get angry at a good thing and use it as a reason to put someone to death? Right. Where where we don't like someone. So we use a good thing as a way to bring them down. But do we also see the presence of the son of God? in spite of all the darkness, like Martha, right? That Martha was in one of her worst places in her life and could still see the light that was God, right? That's, that's incredible, right? That her brother just died. She herself was upset about it and she could still say, but I know that you're the son of God, right? Are we like that? Do we have that in spite of darkness or instead do we focus on the darkness, right? Is that where we go? Finally, does our come and see? 
refer to something that is life-giving or something that dies. When someone asks you for the reason of the hope that's within you, somebody asks you why you live, if somebody asks you why you do what you do, what do you point at? Because for many of us, for most of our lives, it's probably been the door of the tomb, right? And instead, it should be at Christ who is resurrection and life. To him be glory now and forever to age of all ages. Amen.